You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Why is it that good things happen to bad people? It's not necessarily bad people that good things happen to. What you give is what you get. So yes, sometimes it may seem like a person is a bad person. Okay, well they've done this, this, and this. Well, your actions aren't necessarily what makes you a good or a bad person. It just helps guide that. I guess everyone deserves something good. Even if you're not a great person, you still deserve good things to happen to you. So maybe that's why. Anything can happen to anyone. I mean, no matter what you do, it's kind of chance. Statistical probability. Why do good things happen to bad people? I normally, I wouldn't really say good things happen to bad people. Good things happen to everybody. It's just the sad thing is, is when somebody is doing something wrong in their life and something good happens to them, people focus on that more than, well, I've been doing all this, that, and the other, and nothing's happened to me. Why do good things happen to bad people? I don't even think I can answer that. It's what life dishes out, you know? I mean, you could be a great person and still bad things happen to you. You'd be a bad person and never have anything bad happen to you. I don't know. I think some of it is just like, I guess the way the world revolves, like there's going to be things that, like some things are just out of your control and it's just the, I guess, fate or the way life works that you try your best, but sometimes there's just factors out of your control. If I were to equate the occurrence of good things happening to bad people is uh, to a divine will, you know, of a creator or God, what have you. Um, it would be to the effect of showing them that there's something brighter than the darkness that they have. You know, uh, it, it's uh, man, that yeah, that, that's that's difficult. Good morning. My name is KJ. I'm the director of modern worship. Uh, giving my title this morning finally makes sense to me because it's not apparent to you that I would be the director of modern worship. Uh, as I always say, if I haven't met you, then I certainly hope that I do get the chance to meet you. Um, <laughs> I wish that I had the opportunity to say, why do good things happen to bad people? I don't even think I can answer that. And that'd just be it. You know what I'm saying? But I had the privilege of talking to you guys this morning tr truly about why do good things happen to bad people. Um, but before that, I want to answer the question that I'm sure is burning on all of your hearts and minds. What does KJ stand for? <laughs> KJ stands for Caleb Junte. Um, Caleb was my given name by my adopted parents. Uh, I was born originally in South Korea. Here's a baby picture of me. Um, yeah, so I was adopted from South Korea. My family name was Kong, uh, and then my biological parents named me Juntae. So my parents, when they adopted me, they took away Kong, gave me Caleb with a K, uh, kept Juntae, so I got to keep part of that uh, as who I am. And then they were just really, really excited to call me KJ. So uh, that was exciting. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so each week in the series, we've been looking at different questions that ask some part about what it means to be a human in the 21st century. Uh, what do we do with use as people? Why does work matter? 
Why rest? Why do relationships fall apart? And if you missed any of these, then, um, or you just want to hear what the other pastor had to say about it, I encourage you to go online or check out the messages in the app, podcast, and whatever. Um, that would be great. But today we're talking about why do good things happen to bad people. Now, I want to start by acknowledging the fact that there is a much more popular version of this question. That's why do bad things happen to good people? And I'm sure that it's a topic that many of you have heard about. Uh, there's been a whole book written on it. I haven't read it. Um, but these two questions, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? I think they stem from a similar place. And there's two ways that we can answer this question. The first one, let me give you an example. When somebody falls down, no one blames gravity. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, ah, oh, gravity got me again. <laughs> it always sneaks up on me. Like we all, nobody forgets about gravity. In the same way, um, this is actually really similar to one of the answers that was given in the bumper video. The woman and the, the couple, uh, she says, she actually quotes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when she says, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The reality of life is that the rules that govern the way that the world works act upon us all in the same way. But when we ask the question, why do blank things happen to blank people? We're not really asking, how does the world work? What we really wanna know is why. We're looking out in the world and we see these clear imbalances or these unfairnesses in life and we wanna know why these exist. A really personal question for this would be, why am I the only one in my family who has nine fingers? The heart of the question isn't like how the world works, it's why me or why not me? To explain this a little bit differently, um, I'm gonna take the question and extrapolate it up just a little bit. So we're gonna take the adjectives and move them up to get to a place where I think that a lot of us have found ourselves. So we start with why do good things happen to bad people? Then we move up a level and we go, why do really good things happen to just okay people? Why do extremely good things happen to good people and not me? And finally, why do all of my friends get a cool spring break vacation and I have to stay home and work? Anybody feel that? Yeah. All right. So that, was, that question was actually posed to me by my wife, Sarah, who graduated from Mizzou in 2016. Here's a picture of me. Yeah, gross. <laughs> um, I was really, really happy of it. So this whole year, uh, this has been her first year out of college in the working world. And she was, we were getting ready for bed one night and she was scrolling through Instagram and she just saw picture after picture of all of her friends who were still in college and it was March or whatever, so spring break time. They were out at the beach or out in the mountains having fun. And she's like, man, I wish I had a spring break still. I think that many of us have asked some version of why does everybody else get to do cool stuff and not me? Sarah, to combat kind of this feeling of jealousy, has taken up the mantra that I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's a, a quote from Theodore Roosevelt. I'm not really that great at looking up where quotes came from, but the quote is, comparison is the thief of joy. That quote uh, is one that I found myself repeating more and more often. So the question really that we have to ask ourselves is how do we deal with this thief of joy? And I think uh, if we look to the Psalms and we look to the way that the ancient Israelites lived their lives, we'll have some clue of how they did it because I think the Psalms express human condition really well. So let's take a look at Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day, have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, 
Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemies say, I will overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises for he has been good to me. Like I said, I love reading the Psalms because I think that they express the human condition really well. I think they're gorgeously written uh, and they've got a lot of wisdom, but I love them for another reason. And this is actually one of my favorite things to do. If ever I get the chance to read the Bible uh, and think about it this way, it doesn't always work, but I like imagining David just being like an overdramatic teenager. You know what I'm saying? And then like towards the end of the Psalm, it's like someone threw him in a cold shower. He's like, all right, relax, the world is fine. So to illustrate my point further, I'm gonna reread Psalm 13 in a version that some could say is the KJV. <laughs> all right, so here you go, Psalm 13. God, dude, hello, do I just not exist to you anymore? How long are you gonna keep ignoring my texts? Because that's how we would pray to him, obviously. I'm going crazy here. Every day, there's a million voices in my head. And if I'm being honest, they're winning. I'm depressed all day. God, can't you at least look at me? Reply just once. Brighten my day just a little bit, a little bit or else, what's the point? All the people who are out to get me will say, we finally broken him. And when that's finished, no one's gonna ask me if I'm doing okay. But actually, I'll be fine. I know you've done great things for me in the past and my heart knows you'll do it again. I'll keep talking you up to all my friends because you're still the best thing that's ever happened to me. That was an insane emotional roller coaster. He was like, God, why? But you know what, it's fine. Actually, God, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> Just this crazy, crazy roller coaster of emotion. It's really fun for me to imagine King David as an overly dramatic teenager. Uh, but the turn at the end of the Psalms, I think, provides a really, or indicates a really profound depth in his soul. David knew that for all of the terrible and unfortunate things that life threw on him, being faithful to God was still the better option. So many of the Psalms have this key turn at the end where they declare that God is still to be praised. And I think that this turn comes from a strong sense of the Israelite identity. They knew who they were and they knew who the God they served was. It must have been super awesome, actually, to have been a part of that ancient Israelite tribe. Do any of you wish that you were like alive in that time? Like, yo, it would have been awesome to see the Red Sea part, or it would have been awesome to have been led by a pillar of fire or a cloud of smoke. Honestly, that would have been great, but I don't know if I could live life without Siri and like Wi-Fi, <laughs> or just a toilet, honestly. But I, I find myself falling into the trap of really romanticizing how easy it must have been for the ancient Israelites. I mean, we know we can read their stories. They didn't, they weren't exactly great followers of God, but they had a lot of really clear signs. It should have been very easy for them. They knew that they belonged to him. They, God often called them my chosen people. They would have had incredibly clear, simple identities. But I think that living today in this world that we live in, uh, our identities aren't so simple. In fact, they are very complex. So um, I'm gonna show you just a little bit about what makes up my identity, because I think that even for me, it is um, especially complex and unique, but just to get a sense of how crazy this is, and also so that you guys can get to know me so that we have something to talk about when you come talk to me afterwards. Okay, so as I mentioned before, I was born in South Korea. I was adopted by my family at uh, six and a half months of age. There's my family. Uh, I'm the dot on the left. And uh, yeah, man, that is a lot of denim. 
the 90s, right? All right. Um, I grew up in Texas, but my mom is from Arizona. My dad is from Wisconsin. My two older siblings, they're on the outsides. Uh, they're both biological to my parents, and they spent their younger years in Arizona. And then my younger sister on the right of me was adopted from Russia at two years of age, give or take. Uh, all that to say, I, being born in South Korea, am the most Texan of my family. <laughs> yeah, I know. Mostly that just means I say y'all and fixin' to. I'm not really into like the cowboy thing, so, or trucks and whatever. <laughs> On top of that, my family is, as you can see, mostly white and Christian. Uh, so I was raised in a super white Christian, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, environment. Um, I went almost exclusively to private Christian schools for all of my education through college, except for a brief stint in the third to fifth grade where I went to public school. And that's where I learned about rap music and rock and roll and deodorant. <laughs> in all of these contexts, I was the minority of minorities. There were never more than like four other Asians around me in my life. So I have learned what it means to be an Asian American through two main channels, uh, white people's perspective of Asians and YouTube, <laughs> which I'm really grateful for. On top of all of that, although I'm learning Korean right now, of the other languages that I speak, I'm probably best at Spanish. And growing up in Texas, as you can imagine, there's a lot of Latin American influence. So when I think about myself as a minority, I identify first with Latin Americans and then as Asians but typically I just think of myself as white, which is very confusing when you're trying to figure out like how to dress yourself. <laughs> On top of that, uh, because of my right hand, I kind of identify with the disabled and handicapped community, but not really, because I don't really think it slows me down that much. I used to when I was a little kid. I was like, I can't do the monkey bars. And it was really terrible for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So that's just some basics about my family life. That's not to mention my identity as a professional uh, or as a husband or the one that I hear a lot about. Right, like I hear so much about this identity that it is annoying to me, me being a hashtag millennial. That one, is anybody else tired of reading about millennials? Yeah, yeah, all right, Whew. good, glad it's not just me. So in comparison, being an ancient Israelite seems remarkably simple. You'd be like, I am God's chosen person and we're gonna rule the world and we're gonna live in a land that's flowing in milk and honey. Perfect, that's so easy. Fortunately, the Bible also has a letter, um, well, a book called Colossians, uh, where Paul writes to the city of Colossae, Colossae, pastor, how do I pronounce that? He doesn't know, all right, great. So Colossae, I'm gonna say Colossae, yeah, Colossae, that sounds good. And, uh, they were dealing with a lot of identity influencers and shapers because they found themselves in a very cosmopolitan, crossroads-y type area of the world. So the letter, the book of Colossians, was written to help guide a new church and a new faith that was awash in an ocean of, the of other theologies and practices. I imagine that growing up in Colossians was probably a lot like growing, my time growing up in Dallas. You've got like little Italy, little Korea and Chinatown and obviously all the Latin Americans and the white people and the black people, just a lot of things right up in, in this one city. And one of the more common practices in Paul's day was to take bits and pieces of each religious practice and add it to your own practices. It's what I would call like a, a life of pie or a Chinese buffet approach to religion. What I mean by Chinese buffet is like, so you go to a Chinese buffet 
Um, and you go and you get your noodles and you get your rice and you get your chicken, cashew chicken, right, Springfield? Uh, and you get your, uh, your crab legs and you get your French fries and you get your pudding and you get your jello and you sit at your table and you're like, look at this awesome Chinese food. And some of these things definitely don't belong at that table. So Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, he's giving some very clear instructions for what it means to be a Christian. So in uh, Colossians 3, he writes, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, there's a version of the Bible called The Voice. I'm sure, well, I hope many of you have heard me speak about it. I am forever indebted to Pastor Jason for showing it to me. And The Voice imagines scripture as a screenplay. So there's characters with lines of dialogue. There's stage action. Uh, and in stage action, uh, typically that says, like, the person moves to the left and the things come in. That wouldn't just be clear in dialogue. Now, in The Voice version, it gives us historical context or further reading. So right before that section that we just read, it says this. Notice Paul doesn't say, just add Jesus to what you already believe, or factor Jesus into your philosophy, or include Jesus in this or that ritual. The claim that Jesus is Lord does not allow that. If Jesus is creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all creation, then all other teachings must give way. And I think that that's a profound statement. In fact, I think it's so profound, I'm gonna read it again. So can we throw that last line up there? If Jesus is creator, sustainer and redeemer of all creation, then all other teachings must give way. I think this is so important, especially for us living today in a world that is increasingly more global, in a world that is increasingly more exposed to cultures and more aware of how we're supposed to interact with each other. It would be so easy for us as Christians to get lost in rhetorics of tolerance and political correctness. And I'm not saying that being politically correct isn't important, but what I'm saying, I think it's really important to say that, that we need to learn to respect each other as people and to respect other beliefs and to come together and have uh, discussions, dare I say it, even disagreements, and at the end of the day say, you're still a human being and I can respect you for that. But Paul is calling us, I think, to something different. He's calling us to live uh, different lives. He says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So we don't have the freedom then to simply absorb everything into our own religious practice. Everything must be put to the test, viewed through the lens of the person of Jesus. In fact, Paul says it like this in another letter. He says, we demolish arguments and ideas, every high and mighty philosophy that pits itself against the knowledge of the one true God. We're taking prisoners of every thought, every emotion, and subduing them into obedience to the anointed one. It comes from 2 Corinthians. This morning, our challenge when wrestling with the question, why do good things happen to bad people, is to subdue it into obedience to the anointed one. And in order to do that well, I think we have to understand two things, who God is and who we are as his children. For me, I have the benefit of already being adopted once, so being adopted again into God's family, I think is, should be an easy thing for me. It's not always easy because I kind of forget sometimes. Um, but I think that, uh, <laughs> Like, it's really hard for me to imagine, like, okay, so here's God, who we're supposed to be able to call Father because we're adopted, right? Because we are um, a part of that family. And yet God the Father to me seems so unknowable, so big, so almighty, powerful, mysterious. Thank goodness God was like, you know what? I'm pretty awesome, and maybe I'm hard to get to know. So I'm going to send my son down, Jesus, 
to be a human so that humans can have some point of connection and they can learn about me through him. Thank goodness. If Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is a thief of joy, then I think um, to deal with this thief of joy, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus and work on growing our relationship with him. If we fixate on that relationship, then we don't allow ourselves any time to ask the question, why do good things happen to bad people? This morning, I wanna focus on just one of the ways to get to know Jesus better. Having been adopted uh, into an amazing and godly family uh, that helps me understand being a child of God that in a way that many may not. Of course, growing up in the Relke household was super formative for me, but I haven't really realized it until now that the world considers me an adult, which is a big mistake, by the way. Um, I, so considered an adult, and I don't live anywhere near my family and my dad, which means that every time I get to go home and I get to spend time with them, I relish every opportunity I have to interact with them. And I look especially to my dad because uh, he is just an amazing model for how a Christian man should work in the world, should move in the world. Um, and I know that, um, that his faith, the way that he is imitating Christ is something that I want to emulate um, for my friends, for my family when we have a family one day. Um, so I love being able to interact with him. Um, you know, sometimes like I'll call him, sometimes I'll text him, he'll send me emails. Um, yeah, but my favorite time to interact with him is during meal times. I find that there's something profound about talking with people over a meal or over coffee. Has anybody had that experience where you're just like, man, conversation is really good right now. I don't ever want it to stop. Sometimes it feels like it's catching lightning in a bottle if you get a group of people uh, and, it just, and it works really well. When both parties are committed to being fully present and in the moment, conversation flows like water and it's as rich as an artisan bread, my favorite thing, or a specialty dessert, Sarah's favorite thing. You know, whatever floats your boat. Potential distractions like a phone call or a text message or a work email, uh, they're just that, distractions. And so if you have to deal with them, you're like, all right, I'll just, let me do this real quick and then I'll get back to you because I wanna be fully present and fully in the moment with you. This morning, we have the opportunity to spend a meal with Jesus. And I hope and I pray that we can center ourselves and be fully present on the person of Jesus, that we would grow in our knowledge of who he is, we would grow in our relationship with him, and not have any time to ask the question, why do good things happen to bad people? What do we do with useless people? Why does what I'm doing at work matter? Why should I rest? How, why are my relationships falling apart? Instead, we're just saying, God, I wanna know you more. God, I want this relationship to be something awesome. This morning, as we have a meal with our dad, really, I encourage you to be fully present at the table of our Lord. I encourage you to sing, expressing your knowledge and your love of him. I encourage you to pray, to enter into conversation with him, even if it's just to listen. Sometimes uh, when I'm sitting at a table, I just like hearing people tell stories and I just, I'd listen to those people talk all day. I encourage you to, uh, to write or to draw as if like your time on earth is you at school and you get to go and show your dad, dad, look what I did at school today. Don't miss out on a God who is fully and ever present because this morning and this time, we have the opportunity to sit at the table and to be fully present with Jesus as individuals, but also as a community of believers. 
So this time I'm gonna ask uh, Pastor Jake to come up and lead us in communion. And if the band, if you guys would come up too, let's spend time being fully present with a God who is fully present with us.